All right. Well, as we're here on this year's VBS Sunday, like I said, it's looked a little bit different uh, this year than in past years. I want to take a brief poll. Raise your hand if you've ever attended a vacation Bible school or a Sunday school class or a religious instruction class when you were a kid. Okay. Uh, Raise your hand if you ever watched a Bible story cartoon or read Bible stories in a book when you were a kid. Okay. Now raise your hand if you ever heard of the famous story of David and Goliath. I think all of our hands go up with that one, yeah. No doubt most of us have. And Mr. Don Jackson, who did a fantastic job leading the lessons and songs each evening of this VBS, <laughs> even as I know he was struggling physically, uh, taught on this very story this past week as well. Uh, but what I want to do today is take this famous story that we've all heard of, perhaps so many times that it's lost a little bit of its meaning, and delve a little deeper into it and see if we can learn anything on a deeper knowledge and inward uh, spiritual level. So if you brought your Bible with you today, uh, if you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we're going to be kind of bouncing around the verses of 31 through 54. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. Uh, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to look more closely at the major players going on here so we can better understand who they are at the point of our passage this morning. The first guy we're going to be talking about is the man of arrogance. Number one, first up, is the man of arrogance. I want to talk about the instigating player in our account this morning, that giant named Goliath. Goliath is the epitome of human strength and human arrogance. Goliath is from the people group known as the Philistines. The Philistines are not new to Israel's history by any means. In fact, the Philistines caused trouble for the Israelite people all through the, book, the Old Testament book of Judges. And looking at how many times they attack Israel, we can surmise that they really, really want to beat Israel and take their land. This is what they really want. They've won in the past. They've oppressed Israel for a time. But then God would send a deliverer to defeat the Philistines and drive them out. Then comes the book of 1 Samuel and a guy named King Saul. Saul beats the Philistines every time they try to do battle with Israel. So the Philistines hatch a new plan. They come up with a new plan. And that is to send a champion to meet whomever Israel would send out. What do they got to lose? Every single time they go do battle with Israel, King Saul and his Israelite army beats them back. So what do they do? They go find a man who is gigantic in size named Goliath. Here's what's interesting about Goliath. Goliath was no mere man. We, just re uh, we will read that Goliath is from Gath, a, a section of land named Gath. Way back, when Moses is about to enter the promised land, he sends 12 spies to see what the land and its people are like. 
the ten spies claimed the sons of Anakim, who were living in the land, uh, made them look like grasshoppers because the sons of Anakim were so gigantic. Imagine people like that. Then, as has been noted, when Joshua is conquering the promised land, we read, there were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some remained. So some of these renowned giants, known as Anakim, connected to the Nephilim, if you've heard of those people before, that's a whole other story. They lived in Gath, and somewhere along the line produced Goliath of Gath. We see Goliath's size in 1 Samuel 17.4. He was six cubits and a span. Anybody doing the math in their head now as to what that translates out to now? Some of you are nodding, taking me seriously here. Okay. <laughs> a cubit is about 18 inches. So six cubits would be 108 inches or 9 feet. Add a span, which is a half a cubit, or nine inches, and Goliath was just three inches shy of ten feet tall. No wonder everyone was so scared, right? And people weren't as tall back then as they are now in general. So imagine somebody even a foot taller than some of us now, full-grown adult, looking up at a ten-foot-tall man. Now when you think of a ten-foot-tall man, he's not just really tall and really skinny, like maybe uh, some of the NBA players are right now. Uh, everything is gigantic, okay? Everything about the guy is, is, is oversized. And Goliath's size makes him arrogant. Goliath most likely had combat experience and had obviously won all of his fights. He thought he was unbeatable, and he had been. We read in, in 1 Samuel 17, 16, that Goliath strutted in front of Israel's army for 40 days. He thought it was only a matter of time until he was victorious. Goliath probably had heard about the conquests of Israel's army and its many victories under their God, but Goliath didn't think that that God's power pertained to him. A lot of us can be that way sometimes too, huh? Think we can just live our lives the way we want and think that anything that God wants doesn't pertain to us, doesn't matter. What is that? Same as Goliath. It's arrogance. Even if we're not defying God with our voices, we're defying God by the way we're living our lives. And there's a very strong warning against that in Scripture. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Goliath sowed arrogance, and death is what he reaped. In our passage today, we read this about Goliath's demise at the hands of a lowly shepherd boy. So, 1 Samuel chapter 17 Verses 48 through the beginning part of 51. We're sort of dropping into the middle of the story here. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. What a way to go out, huh? Does arrogance pay? I don't think so. To add insult to injury, Goliath is killed by his own sword by this teenage boy. What are you sowing? Seeds of arrogance? or seeds of living the way God wants you to live. Paul, the Apostle Paul follows Galatians 6-7 with this, For the one who sows to his own flesh selfishness, sinfulness, will from the flesh reap corruption, and ultimately will reap death, eternal death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, reap eternal life. If you want death, and you want the hell that comes along with eternal death, keep sowing seeds of arrogance in your life. Keep sowing seeds of, of selfishness and thinking, well, I, God's authority doesn't really pertain to me. If you want eternal life, sow seeds of living by being led by the Holy Spirit. So we have the man of arrogance, and we see what ends up happening to the man of arrogance. Secondly, we're going to talk about the man of pride. This is a little bit less of a level of arrogance here. Still a high level of pride, but maybe just not as bad as Goliath. We're going to take a look at the guy named King Saul now. He is the first king of Israel. And how he confirms that calling is by military strength and guts. Saul has been declared publicly by the prophet Samuel as Israel's first king in 1 Samuel 10, but here's the problem. Now Saul had to show the people he had the courage that was worth following because not everyone would want to follow someone who didn't come from some long royal dynasty already. He's just the first king here. So Saul confirms his bravery and guts when some fellow Israelites were under attack by the Ammonites and he sent pieces of a couple of butchered oxen all over Israel and declared, may it be done to each man's oxen who doesn't come follow me into battle. <laughs> Imagine the guts that it took to utter those words. That took some guts right there, didn't it? But it worked. Saul raised 330,000 men to fight with him with that tactic. I am not suggesting anyone here uses that tactic to get anybody to do what you want them to do. This is what Saul did, and, it overwhel and, and the Israelite army overwhelmingly defeated the Ammonites. Saul spent the greater part of the following years of his kingship fighting and defeating armies who threatened the well-being of Israel. Uh, 1 Samuel 14, if you uh, flip back a few chapters, 1 Samuel 
14, 47 through 48, tell us this. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So Saul is no sissy. Saul has been in battle after battle after battle. He's killed man after man after man himself. The people of Israel follow Saul and his son Jonathan into every battle and come out victorious. So even though Saul is no sissy, here's the problem with Saul. Saul is very proud. Saul liked to take matters into his own hands. So much so that he's forfeited his kingship in the near future. He let his military intelligence, strength, and guts all go to his head. But being a warring king is all that Saul has ever known. So how will God show Saul that it is not from Saul's military strength that his victories came from, but from God? How is God going to break him of that? That question is answered in two stages. When Saul's first battles with the Ammonites back, with Saul's first battles with the Ammonites back in 1 Samuel 11, what does God give to him? in that battle. Then the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and he became very angry. So what has God given to Saul all this time in all of his battles? I can't hear you. His Spirit, His Holy Spirit. Very good. The Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. So the first stage that God will use to teach Saul where his strength really came from is that God will remove that Holy Spirit that had given Saul so much strength in all his battles. Remove it from him and replace it with something else. So this is what we read following that. Now the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, left Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord, terrified him. This sounds a little disturbing, doesn't it? Scripture says that this evil spirit was sent by God. That it's an evil spirit from the Lord. Now I thought, that, as James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Because God does not tempt people. Yes, this is also true, and it sheds light on the answer to this. In this morning's passage, Saul is not being tempted here. Rather, God is allowing him to be tormented. So God will allow the movement of Satan's followers for his own purposes. We know God used the pagan kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon to punish his own people. We know that Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
But notice Satan couldn't just do whatever he wanted to do. He had to ask permission from God to do what he wanted to do to Peter. We also know that Satan had to get permission from God to torment Job. That's a whole book of what Job is about. The point is that God is still in control of even what evil forces do. God always knows what Satan is up to, and he always has to get permission from God to do certain things. In that way, demons are sent from God, but it's always for a reason. Most of the time, that reason, as is the case for Saul, is to teach us something. See, God is still having grace upon Saul. Believe it or not, God is still having grace upon Saul. God wants Saul to go to his knees and look to God for his strength and find peace. Saul does not have peace, and Saul knows that full well. So God allows for this disturbing being to overcome Saul and make that even more apparent. Sometimes God uses unsettling and disturbing circumstances to drive us to our knees and realize that our only peace can only be found in God. This first first stage, though, is not enough to break Saul of his pride. Instead of looking to God for his strength and peace, he looks to a shepherd boy who has raw talent in playing the harp. See, Saul still doesn't get it. So God initiates phase two of his grace in breaking Saul of his pride. And phase two is what we're focusing on this morning. In 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines yet again want to take over Israel's land, and so they draw up for battle. Saul, as he's used to doing for years, counters the Philistine attack by drawing up his army to defend his land. This battle arrangement seems like nothing different from what Saul is used to engaging in. And every other time he's done it, what's happened? He's won. There's no reason to believe that this time will be any different. Before the two armies can fight each other, though, the Philistines (laughs) throw a curveball into things. Before Saul can charge the Philistines, they send out their giant. Now, things are different. Radically different. Things are different because of the challenge that is given. The challenge issued by the giant is that Israel send their champion out to fight Goliath. Whoever's champion wins, that side will enslave the losing side. When the champion of an enemy army gives such a challenge, who do you think is the most logical champion from Israel? Who is the man with the long list of won battles on his resume? Who is the man who somehow convinced uh, 330,000 men to follow him into battle against the Ammonites? Who is the man who, as Scripture says, inflicted punishment on all the surrounding enemy armies? Who is the whole army of Israel turning around and looking at at this point? King Saul. That's why it says 
in 1 Samuel 17.11 that Saul and all Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid. We obviously know why Saul is afraid. Think if any of us were in his shoes right now, we'd feel the exact same way. He has always won in battle with an army of Israelites at his back, with battle tactics, not fighting one-on-one. And now all of Israel is afraid because perhaps they see who they put all their hope into. They see that Saul has begun to crack. And without Saul, there's nobody else. How are they going to win? Here we come to our passage this morning. There comes a shock. There comes a surprise out of nowhere. That shepherd boy who plays the harp in the royal court for Saul approaches Saul about killing the giant himself. 1 Samuel 17, 31-32. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice uh, Saul's response here. Then Saul said to David, You are not going to fight against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. You can hear the disrespect in Saul's voice. Are you kidding me? Why are you even bothering me with this completely insane plan that will never work? Why do you think we've been sitting here for 40 days? You think it's because, oh, where is a shepherd boy going to come from that can fight this giant for us? It's because we have no clue what we, what we want to do. It's because even with all my fighting experience, I know I can't defeat him. There's obviously no one else who will be able to either. So why on earth do you, merely a boy, with absolutely no battle experience whatsoever, think you can defeat him? David tells him of his experience fighting off wild animals as a shepherd. Saul was inspired by David, and judging from what we've explored about Saul so far, I think for a brief moment... Saul finally got that it was God who gave him his battle victories. And he believed, he truly believed, even for a moment, that God would give this shepherd boy the mighty spirit of God that he experienced. We discover this by Saul's response, the second part of verse 37. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Even though Saul understands that David will only win by God's strength, his humanity still gets in the way, and he insists that David wear armor. Verses 38 through 39. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. This is the last we hear about Saul in this experience. And from this point on, it's all about David. Perhaps Saul watched this battle as we would our favorite team in the championship game or the Super Bowl on the edge of our seats, 
hearts racing, adrenaline rushing. Then when Goliath fell, I am 100% sure Saul was the first one on his horse, charging towards the Philistines in a rush of battle high. We can gather as much because this is what happened after David killed Goliath. Second part of verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shaaraim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. We can see all that happened after David did what he did. Saul ended that day a happy man. But it wasn't long after that that his pride returned and took the form of intense jealousy towards David. Saul may have learned his lesson that day for a moment, but it didn't change his life. He continued in pride and jealousy for the rest of his days. And Saul, too, ended his life filled with Philistine battle arrows and falling on his own sword. Another death. When God gives us experiences to reveal our pride, we can't take them lightly. We can't get angry at God, because what's he doing as he's revealing these things to us? He's trying to spare us from worse things down the road. God knows that our pride will be the death of us if we don't surrender all of ourselves and our feelings and our pride to his sovereignty. This verse from James talks about this. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, it's just logical. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We talked about the man of arrogance. We talked about the man of pride. And thirdly, we're talking about the man of God. Man of arrogance, the man of pride. Thirdly, the man of God. David was a shepherd boy. If we remember from the Christmas story we hear every year, shepherds were considered the bottom of the barrel in society, right? They smelled bad and hung out with sheep all day. More than that, when Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel from David's family, his father wasn't even considering him a viable candidate. After God said no to all of David's other brothers, Samuel had to ask David's dad if he had any other sons. And then David's dad said, oh yeah, there is that other one that exists. But he's out in the fields with the sheep right now. But all of that was about to change. David is the one who was chosen to be the next king, and Samuel anoints him 
as such. But in order for the Israelite people to follow David as their next king eventually, God has to make a name for David. And as we just saw, David is far from being notable. Even to his own family, even to his own dad, he's far from notable. Nobody's even heard of him. And for a brief moment, his dad even forgot about him. (laughs) So God starts him on the road to being notable. That starts when when Saul has that evil spirit descend upon him and his servant suggests someone come and play the harp for him. And one of those servants suggests that David, a boy he's heard play skillfully on the harp, come and play for him. This results in 1 Samuel 16, 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul greatly loved him, and he became his armor bearer, his most trusted guy in his court. If someone's your armor bearer, you trust them with your life. Because you trust that the armor they're bringing to you is perfect in condition, without holes, without being rusty, without going to be breaking apart as you're in battle, but being kept up to the highest degree. This position of armor bearer was one built on great trust because Saul had to be confident enough in David that David was never going to tamper even with that armor and that he was going to keep it in tip-top shape. In the middle of chapter 17, while delivering food to his older brothers at the front lines, David hears Goliath's taunting challenge and responds with this, 1 Samuel 17, 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God. See, David knew who Goliath was really taunting. God was using Goliath to try to change Saul's heart. But David didn't know that. He just saw a man of flesh and blood dissing the representatives of his God. Because David was inquiring so much, that news soon reached Saul's ears. When Saul called for David, David said to him in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice the difference in mindset. To David, Goliath is nothing more than a potential threat that needed to be dealt with. Certainly far from, not at all, the worst thing that had ever happened to him. Like Saul's thinking at this point. That belief is developed further when Saul questions his sanity to wanting to be the one to fight Goliath. David says in verses 34 through uh, 37, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them." since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, 
he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Notice where David is confident his strength will come from. From the same God who protected him and gave him strength against the bears and the lions that attacked the flock he was commissioned to protect. This is David's first teaching lesson in translating his protection of a flock of sheep to protection of a flock of a nation as future king. What David knew before he was king was what Saul never learned, never realized for himself while he was king. And that was that the, the, the king of Israel, the king of Israel's power and strength, whether it be wisdom, military strength, or prosperity, could only come from God and God alone. David already knew that. Saul never learned that. David further revealed this confidence in his words to Goliath as he stood before him. Verses 45 through 47. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. The battle is the Lord's, and he's the one who's going to deliver you into my hands. Both Goliath and even Saul trusted in their own skill with weapons and armor. But there David was, with no armor and armed with nothing but a piece of leather as a sling and five stones. David says, I want everyone here to see something. Both the Philistines and my own people, the Israelites. Both Goliath and my own king. Everything that happens, what is happening right here and right now, God is in complete control of. You cannot think you can beat God with a spear. You cannot think you can live your life the way God, uh, the way you want to without thinking about God. My life and this fight are in God's hands. And since I am a part of God's nation and you, Goliath, are threatening our lives, you will die today. And not only will you die, but I will remove your head from your body. It's not something you learn in vacation Bible school, I don't think. <laughs> I love that. I love those words. Those are very bold words, aren't they? But they are exactly the words we are to live by each day. This battle 
that we're talking about this, this morning is something historical that actually happened and had actual historical ramifications. But since God's word is a never-ending fountain of truth, we can also see this battle and its major players as our battle against our enemy who stalks around like a roaring lion, but also as our battle with our own humanity and our own pride. See, we were never meant to fight any of these unseen spiritual battles that we go through on a daily basis on our own, on our own strength. And we were never meant to fight our temptations, our addictions, our sins, our indifference, our laziness, our pride, our selfishness, and again, downright spiritual warfare on our own or in our own strength. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that it's only when we've given up on ourselves and surrendered ourselves completely to God's power and God's transformation that we'll ever be actually strong in any of those battles. He says, and God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in your weakness. So Paul goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that is what people see. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am at my weakest, I am actually at my strongest, relying on God's power and God's power alone. Psalm 121.2 says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The creator of the universe's power will be given to you once you realize you have no power of your own. That battle will always be lost unless you know whose battle it actually is. We all need to let go of our pride no matter what form it takes. As James references, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Victory will come no matter what the battles are, when we humble ourselves before God and know that He alone is our only source of strength. The only source of our victory in this life and for our next life is Jesus. It's really very simple. Jesus, not us, or how good we think we are, is our only way to heaven. In fact, the only way to heaven is by repenting of our sin and who we are and taking Jesus as our only source of, of salvation from ourselves and from our sin and, and make him the sole authority over the rest of our lives. Jesus is our only victory over our sin. Jesus is our only victory over earthly death. Jesus is our only victory over temptation and pride. And Jesus is our only victory over Satan in our spiritual battles. I want to end our time this morning 
with a verse that sums all this up, which is also where we pulled this year's VBS theme from. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very famous account that we've all heard of uh, at some point in our childhood or some other point in our life, David and Goliath. Lord, I pray uh, that as we dug a little bit deeper into this, I pray that we not only gained some more head knowledge, but we gained some more heart knowledge, things that will stick with us, things that will help us if we haven't given our lives to you yet, our souls to you yet, uh, in repentance of our sin and, and making you our, the Savior from that sin and King over the rest of our lives, I pray that we would do that right now. Uh, but, uh, but the uh, source that, that tells us the truth that says we, the battle, any of these battles we go through, these are not our battles. These battles are the Lord's. And if we're going to have any victory in them, we have to surrender ourselves completely to him, completely to his word, completely to his Holy Spirit, live the way he wants us to live, surrender every aspect of who we are in our lives up to him and his transformative power. And then we know when we're at our weakest, we're actually at our strongest because we're relying fully on your strength and power. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.